Good morning, everybody. Um, most of you know me, but I'm Joel Repick, lead pastor here at Crestmont. And whoever you are, whether you're a first-time visitor or you're part of our family on mission, we're so glad that you're with us today. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 23. Hard to believe, but this is actually the last sermon I'm going to preach in our series on the book of Acts. And the reason is because we, after today's sermon, are going to skip chapters 24, 25, and 26, which are the details of the Roman legal proceedings against Paul after he's been arrested. Next week, we're going to pick up in Acts 27, but Anna Hart will be preaching at this campus her first sermon, so we're excited about that. And, um, oh, you're right. Turkovich, my goodness, I'm so sorry. Anna Hart Turkovich, <laughs> Anna Turkovich, and then, um, and then uh, we will um, be picking up after that one last sermon um, at in Acts 28. So um, we're really excited about all of that. Um, in December, we'll be in our Advent series, and so this is the last time I'm in front of you in the Book of Acts. Um, it's already been mentioned, I, I believe, but we've been awarded this matching grant from our district of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And so right now, for every um, new dollar that you give to the mission, it gets matched up to $25,000. There's no time limit on that, but it would be awesome if we were able to match that grant before the end of the year. So I want to thank you for everyone who has uh, already generously given we um, so appreciate that, and thank you for considering um, giving to that so we can continue to support what God is doing among us. All right, so where we're picking up in Acts 23, just to remind you of where we are in the story, as the Holy Spirit had told the Apostle Paul, um, uh, he is arrested in Jerusalem. And after uh, being arrested in Jerusalem, um, the Roman commander sees a disturbance and comes down with soldiers and literally rescues um, Paul from the crowd. And Paul gets permission to speak to the crowd. Uh, when he speaks to the crowd, he um, tells the story about how he met Jesus, about his encounter with Jesus that radically changed his life. After this, um, he is flogged by the Roman government as a form of interrogation. But during this interrogation by flogging, Paul tells the Roman officials flogging him that he is a Roman citizen. Not everyone that lived in the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen, but Paul actually had his citizenship and had it from birth. And so his rights are being violated. So he pulls this out. He's, citizens are not allowed to be flogged in this way without a fair hearing. Uh, the Roman government is surprised to find out that he is um, a Roman citizen and that they have violated his rights. And so it becomes necessary at this point for the Roman government to establish formal legal proceedings against Paul. But even though they've detained him, they don't have um, charges against him yet. Um, they aren't even sure why the disturbance happened with the crowd. They're not sure why he was arrested. They really arrested him in many ways to save his life. Now they're trying to get to the bottom of the story. And so to do this, they take him before the Sanhedrin. Now, there's some historical details that, if you don't know them, may make this passage a little bit harder to understand. So I want to give you just a little bit of definition of terms 
and then we'll begin reading in Acts chapter 23. So first of all, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, which Paul is going to be taken before, is the ruling council of Jewish religion, law, and politics. Now, the Jewish people at this point are occupied by the Roman government, but the Roman government allows the Jewish people some self-governance through this body, the Sanhedrin. And under the authority of the Roman Empire, um, the Sanhedrin can make decisions, but the Roman Empire has veto power in all of those decisions. And this ruling body, which meets in the temple, is made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So, what's a Pharisee and what's a Sadducee? Well, a Pharisee is a Jewish, uh, the Pharisees were a Jewish religious sect characterized by detailed attention to the law. Um, they were very popular with the people, from what we can tell in history, and so the people looked up to them. Today, if you were to look at some of the well-known like Christian leaders that everyone looks up to and buys their books and hears their sermons, that's really what the Pharisees were to the people, which is really something to consider because Jesus was often in conflict himself with these popular religious leaders. And the Pharisees were critical of the corrupt temple system. They worshiped there, they participated in temple worship, but they were very outspokenly critical of the issues of corruption in the religious system of the Jews. The Sadducees, which made up the other part of the Sanhedrin, were also a Jewish religious sect, and they were characterized by connected relationships to the aristocratic wealthy elite. So they knew people um, in both the Roman Empire and uh, among the Jews. So the Pharisees were popular with the common person. The Sadducees were popular among the wealthy elite. And at this point in the story, the high priest of the temple is himself a Sadducee. So you need to know that. Now listen, if you were looking at these groups, essentially political parties, um, and looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you might not be able to tell much difference between them. An outside observer watching these two groups might not have noticed much of a difference because the differences had to do mostly with insider partisan politics. Sound familiar to anybody, right? Um, I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I look at our politicians on the right or on the left, and I think, y'all just the same, right? If you've ever had that feeling before, you probably can understand how the average person would have looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Nonetheless, there are significant differences between Democrats and Republicans, and there were significant differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Most of all, it was this, that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They believed, like we believe, that someday everyone who has died is going to be resurrected. They believed in an afterlife, and they believed in spiritual beings, angels, and demons. Sadducees did not believe in any of this. They did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe that the soul continued past the body. So this is probably the biggest point of difference between them, but then this theological difference played itself out in all kinds of political ways. All right, so are you tracking with all of that? With all of that being said, let's go ahead and read Acts 23, beginning in verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. So Paul is now standing before this Jewish religious body um, who has legal power over him. The Roman authorities are watching 
and they're trying to figure out what actually caused the disturbance, what the problem is. And Paul begins his defense by saying, I haven't done anything wrong before God. And as he's talking to his Jewish brothers, he's partly saying, I haven't broken any of your law. I haven't disrespected this temple. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Verse 2. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So now, Paul has had his rights violated by the Roman government and now by the Jewish Sanhedrin because they had their own rules for legal proceedings. And part of those rules were that you couldn't hit a prisoner like that while they were giving testimony, but the high priest commanded for it to be done. Paul's words sound angry, but they are inspired by the Spirit and prophetic because when he says God will strike you, Paul couldn't have known this, but there is a prophetic word in it, that not long after this, the Roman government is going to overthrow the temple, uh, literally burn it to the ground, and the office of the high priest is going to be eradicated. Verse 4, those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now, this is actually the most uh, difficult part to understand in this passage, because what does it mean when Paul says that he didn't know that this was the high priest? It's highly unlikely, actually, that Paul didn't know that, because the priest would have been sitting, the high priest would have been sitting in this proceeding in a very noticeable place. We know that even from archaeology. Um, so he probably would have known who the high priest was. Actually, our best way to interpret this is to see Paul's words as biting and sarcastic. Um, he is saying to the priest, I did not realize you were the high priest because you sure don't act like one. That's what he's saying. And he's not only criticizing the recent uh, you know, interaction there with Paul getting struck on the mouth. He's really criticizing the corruption of the entire religious system at this point. He knows and history tells us that this is a corrupt high priest who has often been corrupt with money and power, has often stolen money from the temple. And history confirms this. And so Paul says, I didn't realize you were the high priest because you don't act like one. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. Now, remember, in this vulnerable moment, Paul does not have a lawyer to defend him, right? So Paul, at this point, needs to dip into his own legal and religious training to navigate the court case that is now facing him. And so really, he begins to act like a lawyer here. And he does something very strategic. He points out that in his background, he himself was a Pharisee. And so was his father. Before Paul met Jesus, he had been part of this religious sect of the Pharisees. And often the Pharisees had opposed him. But now Paul is kind of exploiting the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. And stirring things up a bit. All with the goal of trying to get them to say that he is not guilty. Because Paul knows why he's standing before the Sanhedrin. It's not the Sanhedrin who ultimately is going to determine the outcome of Paul being guilty or not guilty. It's the Roman government. But he knows that the Roman government is listening to these proceedings. And so he wants somebody to say in these proceedings that he has done nothing wrong. So he dips into his political and legal wit to navigate this situation. And then he takes it up a notch. 
It says, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So now he has said it. Now he's put into the proceedings the most controversial thing between Sadducees and Pharisees. But more than that, notice that Paul is doing more than just kind of exploiting this division. He's also doing what? Holding out Jesus now in these proceedings. Because the most radical thing that Christians believe is actually not the death of Jesus Christ, as radical as that is, it's his resurrection, right? That's our claim, is that this Jesus was once dead but is now alive, and we've been saying all along the way that he's the main character of this story. And so now Paul is holding out resurrection as a way to talk about Jesus to this Sanhedrin. Verse 7, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man. And that's what Paul was going after, right? So now it's been said, and the Roman government has heard it. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. The commander is literally afraid that Paul is now in the middle of this verbal dispute that now has become physical between these opposing political parties. And Paul is literally about to be torn to pieces in the midst of this division. And it's that part that I especially want you to pay attention to this morning. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Um, this is the third recorded appearance of Jesus in the book of Acts. He stands next to Paul and says, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Just a few thoughts about everything that I explained to you just now this morning. First of all, I think we can relate to the fact that the world loves to divide into camps defined by difference, self-interest, and offense, right? And we especially see that today. It's especially this part about Paul almost being torn apart in the middle of, these, of this legal proceeding that sticks out to me. We know what that feels like because the world loves to divide into camps defined by difference. You're different than me, so I can't hang out with you. Self-interest, I'm going to put my interests first above your own, and then offense. And I don't have to tell you, there are many people who judge their loyalty to you by you being as offended as they are at other people, right? Um, offense becomes a way to see if someone is really for us and really loyal to us. And I don't have to tell you in the divided world in which we live that what was true in uh, this period of time in ancient Israel and the ancient Roman Empire is still true of us today because it's just a very human thing. We divide into these camps. And because the world is divided into these camps, the way of Jesus can lead us into territory where we are misunderstood and attacked by everybody, right? The way of Jesus can lead us into territory where we are misunderstood and attacked by everybody. 
I've been to India twice, and I have friends there who are leading a viral church planning movement in India. One of our friends was here at the beginning of 2019 and preached a sermon here to us. Um, but it, it, I don't know how much you know about, like, Indian government and Indian politics, but in India, there's been long-standing offense and long-standing political turbulence between Muslims and Hindus in that country. Now, the Christians in that country, who are growing rapidly, um, have no legal representation, really no rights. They have no representative in parliament. But the Hindus and the Muslims in the nation are often fighting with each other in ways that sometimes spill over into violence. And sadly, again and again, when these religious and political disruptions break out in violence, it is often the unprotected Christian minority that finds itself as a pawn in these disputes and attacked by everybody. I asked one of my pastor friends, um, I said, so what does it look like for you when this is happening? And he said, well, we just get attacked by everybody. He said, because they know that we don't fight back. Their movement is spreading and growing. And he said, but they know that we don't fight back. As they take the way of Jesus, a way of peace and non-resistance, um, their movement is growing. But they find that everybody attacks them on every side. It's hard for them to find allies. This happens in the United States, too. I'll share with you a complicated story. I was recently talking to a friend of mine who pastors a church in a state far away from here. And this church has been very visible in the community, similar to the ways ours has. There's a family of businesses and nonprofits that have started around this church to serve the community. And, um, you know, if you're following the way of Jesus as a church, there are going to be some things that seem really appealing to different sectors of society and some things that really don't. For instance, the Christian mandate to love prisoners Listen, I don't know if you've been following the whole, like, Kanye West, like, conversion story online, but this last week he did a, uh, he did a uh, uh, concert in a prison, and the only reason I'm bringing this up is it was fascinating for me this week to read the comments underneath that story on Kanye West and his team's love and concern for prisoners. Now, no matter what you think of Kanye West, what emerged for me in those comments was that if you don't follow Jesus, it's unlikely that you see any merit in showing mercy and dignity and humanity to prisoners, right? But we do. <laughs> That's a Christian thing that often gets misunderstood about the world, uh, by the world. So anyway, my friend in this other state, one thing that they have done in their state is they have radically embraced refugees and immigrants. Now, to a watching world, that seems very offensive to some folks but it, because it can seem like radically progressive or radically liberal to embrace refugees and to embrace immigrants in this way. But they've done it not because of politics, but because they believe it's their mandate from Scripture to welcome their neighbor no matter who they are and to advocate for them and to love them. That can seem radically progressive to some people who are watching. Conversely, if a church teaches a biblical sexual ethic like this church does, that can seem oppressingly conservative, right? And so 
even though this church is filled with people who have questions about their sexuality and questions about how God has made them and find this church a safe place to work out those questions, nonetheless, this church teaches a biblical sexual ethic. And so here's what happened to them. Um, It gets leaked to the news that they teach what they teach about marriage and sexuality. And so this blows up in the news because they have facilities that are used by high-ranking government officials, including the governor of the state, and now there's calls for the governor never to step foot onto this church's property again. So one side is misunderstanding, you know, this church's heart and this church's intent. But then, to make the story weirder, get this, um, this church has started a number of businesses surrounding the church, And they have used job creation as a form of evangelism. You understand what I'm saying? They've created jobs to help people. And they understand that no matter what they teach ethically, they do have a mandate to love their LGBTQ neighbors, right? And they haven't just hired people who believe the same thing that they believe. They've been willing to hire anybody, even if people disagree with what they believe. So as this blows up in the news... The conservatives find out that some of their businesses have hired gay people. So now this is getting blogged about. And this is, so now this church, it's all over the news. Both sides are viciously attacking them. Do you see how the way of Jesus can lead us into these territories? Do you see how the way of Jesus sometimes doesn't fit into the camps that are broken out in our world. We experience this even in our families. I don't know if you remember or if you saw it, but a few years ago, SNL had this hilarious sketch around Thanksgiving about these families with very different political views, this family getting together for dinner. Did any of you see this? And they would start talking, and it would get really intense. It was during the election year, and the only thing that stopped them was one of the children going over and playing the newest Adele song. Do you remember this? And so, you know, it's getting more and more intense, and somebody stands up and presses the CD player, and everyone, like, chills out and calms down, right? But we know what it feels like sometimes, and for some of you who have even just recently started following Jesus, you know what it feels like to all of a sudden feel like an outsider, to feel like you don't fit in the places that you once belonged in. We experience this with our friends. We experience this in workplace politics and relationships. If we're following Jesus, there are going to be times where we are led into territory where we are misunderstood and attacked by everybody. It's like nobody is going to get us. And yes, this can leave us feeling like we don't belong. Yes, it's true. This can make us feel like outsiders. Paul is standing before both Roman and Jewish courts, and at every single one, feeling like he doesn't have a fair hearing, feeling like he's being misunderstood, feeling like things are being said about him that are not true. His theology is being questioned. His politics are being questioned. His relationships are being questioned at every single turn. I feel this way like every time I get on Facebook, right? I feel like, you know what, I just don't belong here, right? Like, I don't fit into that meme. I don't fit into this meme. And I'm not talking about just being like, a moderate politically or something. I'm talking about the way of Jesus, which is different. It's outside of this system completely, and it can leave us feeling like we're on the outside. I don't know if you all know this, but for the last year, I have filled a temporary vacant seat on Aliquippa School Board, and my last meeting is actually this next week, and then I'll be done. And this has been a steep learning experience for me, but sometimes it has put me into rooms 
where there's politicians gathering. And I have felt like such an outsider in those rooms. I'm not putting it all down. It's important. It's necessary. But I'm just saying when we're following the way of Jesus, we step into these environments and sometimes we just think, I don't fit here. I feel this way every time I go into the voting booth. And I hope you do too. I vote with conscience and with conviction and I mean what I vote. And I hope that's the case for you too. But I am very aware that every time I cast my vote that there's no option on that ballot to vote for the pure kingdom of God, right? Um, that I'm voting for things that are fallen and broken, and there's really nothing on this ballot that completely represents the kingdom that I'm a part of and that kingdom's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I feel like an outsider every time I go into the voting booth. Maybe you feel like an outsider and misunderstood around family or friends or in your workplace. You know, the more we have followed the way of Jesus as a church on mission, I have to admit, I even feel this way sometimes when I get around other pastors and churches. I'm not saying we're better than anybody, but I'm just saying we've made decisions to call some things successful that other churches don't value as success, and that can leave us feeling like an outsider sometimes. Now, listen, we sang it. And it's so true. When we're in the arms of Jesus, we're never disconnected. That is our identity. And the only way we ever navigate this territory is by being sure of our identity, that we are eternally connected to Jesus. And yet, I think it's okay in a sermon like this just to say it, that there are times following the way of Jesus when loneliness is a thing. Right? When we're just misunderstood. When people don't, and we know what our identity is, but it still feels lonely. It still feels like we don't belong. And friends, I believe that instead of that crushing us, these can be moments where we remember that we are not part of this world, but part of another kingdom, a different system altogether, that we are part of something else that Jesus has called us into. Because sometimes the way of loneliness is actually the way of Jesus. Sometimes. The way of loneliness is the way of Jesus. And this is quite literally true for Paul in this moment, because think about this. He is arrested in Jerusalem, just like Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem. He is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, just like Jesus was put on trial in the very same room, in front of the very same ruling body. Paul is literally standing in the very place that Jesus stood in his lonely, loneliest time. Paul is struck on the face. And Jesus was struck on the face in this very same place. A different high priest, but the high priest gave the same order. And it was followed through that Jesus be struck. Big difference, and this is worth noting, Jesus remained silent even when he was being struck because he absorbed the shame of that moment. And watch this. That actually means that Paul doesn't have to absorb the shame of this moment. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> it's because Jesus was on this path and absorbed the shame completely. Jesus let himself be seen as a criminal, executed as a criminal, so that Paul doesn't have to absorb that shame, even when he's in this difficult place. So Paul speaks up for himself. He still lets it happen, but he speaks up. He, doesn't, he absorbs that blow, but he doesn't absorb the shame that that blow carries with it. It must have occurred to Paul, I'm sure it did, that he is 
quite literally in this lonely place, following in the footsteps of Jesus, that Jesus had been down this path. And listen, this is literal here for Paul, but it's true for us too. There is no part of the way of Jesus that Jesus has not traveled first. Which means that as we follow the way of Jesus, wherever it goes, into loneliness or misunderstanding or not belonging, we follow somebody who already walked that path. And more than that, the way of Jesus leads to the presence of Jesus. It's not just that we're imitating someone who once lived and is now dead. Are you tracking with me? It's not like we're just imitating a good moral teacher or something like that. Paul says it in the trial, that this is resurrection. We follow someone who is alive today. And I love that Jesus stands near Paul on this night, probably on a night when Paul was questioning if this really was the Lord. Have you ever been there? Like, even after you take the step of obedience and you think the Lord is in it, and then you go to bed at night and you think, was that really the Lord? I mean, how many of you have had an experience like that, right? And so I imagine Paul has some questions, but in this vulnerable state, while he's still in, in chains and while there's still many trials ahead of him, Jesus says, take courage as you have testified me about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. First of all, take courage. Listen, I'm talking today about the different, you know, groups that people break up into, but don't misunderstand my sermon today as some kind of, like, fluffy call for us all just to get along or something like that, because actually that's not what Paul does. Paul actually makes it more controversial, not less, by talking about resurrection. See, the most controversy that we will ever stir up is our message about Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? It's not our message about what we think is right and what's wrong. It's not our political message, as important as those things might be. The most controversy that will ever get stirred up by us is, and, and throughout all of Christian history is talking about Jesus in the places where we have the privilege to be able to talk about him. And so Jesus is saying to Paul, look, you had courage in front of the Sanhedrin and wherever you're going next, however lonely you feel, don't let them silence you. Don't stuff that. You keep having courage in these places. You keep talking about Jesus in these places. And then he says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. If you could come and play, Craig, I'm going to be wrapping up. Um, sometimes when we feel attacked and blocked, like Paul did, can you imagine the betrayal he feels? This, you know, The future court cases he's going to have are in front of the occupying Roman government, but this is his own people. So can you imagine the betrayal that he's feeling? He had been a Pharisee. But sometimes when we feel attacked and blocked by our families, or we feel attacked and blocked in our workplaces, or we feel misunderstood by everybody because we're following Jesus now, sometimes Jesus is actually forging a new path that we weren't able to see before. You know, it is true. This legal mess is going to end in Paul's death. We know that. But before he dies, he is going to stand before Caesar, the Roman emperor. How many people in the ancient world do you think ever got to actually meet the Roman emperor? But Paul is going to stand there. And testify about Jesus there. God is opening up a new path for Paul. 
to advance the kingdom of God that he might never have been able to see before. So, friends, as we wrap up, I just want to say this. Christians are many things. But one thing we are is we are people who have looked at the world with its systems, its turfs, its dividing lines, its political parties, its ideologies, its social scenes, its rat races, career paths, economies, egos, politicians, leaders, celebrities, promises, ambitions, aspirations, comforts, empty promises, unfulfilled hopes, prejudices, racism, materialism, individualism. We've looked at all of that and said, enough. We're done with it. We've looked at the world and said, it's empty. There's no salvation in it. We want nothing to do with it. But then, when we reach that point, here's what happened, like Paul. We met Jesus. He offered us the real deal, the real thing, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then look at this. Instead of just evaporating us out of this world that we said no to, he led us back into it. <laughs> But this time our hearts weren't attached to it. He led us back into the same places, into workplaces, family Thanksgiving meals, school boards, voting booths. He led us into these same places and said, talk about me there. Live me there. But we live in the world as people who have said no to it. So I want to tell you this morning, if you're tired of the world and its promises, what it holds out to you as success or meaning, well, today's a great day to say no to it and to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to a kingdom that will not let you down, to say yes to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Today might be that day. But it's also a reminder to those of us who have said yes to that kingdom that sometimes when we feel lonely and misunderstood and attacked, God is actually opening up new doors for us that we never could have imagined. I've had the privilege of sharing Jesus in some really strange places. Um, one of the more recent ones has been the school board, and I could tell you some stories about that. Um, but I ended up at this rap concert one night. To, you know, it was terrible. But I'm like praying. I'm praying for people there. Some of you were with me when we were in Florida and we held a VBS in a community center that referred people to Planned Parenthood. I mean, what in the world? Um, you know, some of you um, know that when you stay engaged with the world, even though your heart has said no to it, God will open up whole new places, the court of Caesar himself. Whole new places to talk about the goodness of Jesus that you didn't know existed before. And friends, if we take the bait of the world and we stay in the camps that the world divides us into, well, then we never get to see Jesus at work in those places because we're just playing out the script that was given to us, right? Um, I don't doubt that for us as individuals and for us as a church, that God is leading us into some strange territories to speak the name of Jesus. And yes, we may be under, misunderstood by the left. At points, we may be misunderstood by the right. Um, we might be misunderstood by other churches. I think some of that's already happening, actually. Yeah, some of you were like, yes! <laughs> um, but listen, the way of Jesus 
opens up new possibility.